will change, their spirits will change, and they look forward to that. Uh, just that hope of having that great time of fellowship. I can truthfully say that there are days in which I live and I never think about heaven because I'm just so caught up and so involved in what I'm doing now. You're looking at a man that thoroughly enjoys life right here on the planet Earth. But I <clears throat> must never forget, especially when times are not so easy, that I have a reward that's waiting for me, and really there is not promised to anyone that lives on this earth much of a reward. Now, <clears throat> the thing that, that I think we need to stress is that most people consider earthly gain and riches that are accumulated here as some great reward. But some of the saddest people that populate the planet Earth are rich people. I mean, they are really well-to-do, yet they're very unhappy. Very unhappy. Unhappy. The Bible tells us in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verse 10, concerning <clears throat> Abraham... He looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. God called Abraham out of a country that was so full of idolatry, and his family were idolaters. He called him out of this country, and he walked throughout the land which is now Israel, which was known as the promised land in the Old Testament. And God promised him that land. But as far as I know, Abraham never lived in a home after he left Ur of the Chaldees. But he lived in tents. And he moved around. He was just a pilgrim and a stranger in that land. But as he moved around, crawled to the top, of the hills and spoke out into the empty air to a God that he'd never seen. The Bible says that he was questing, he was looking for something that could not be found on the planet Earth. I feel that anyone who is looking for total satisfaction from earthly commodities will end up very disappointed. Very disappointed. The Bible also tells us in the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verse 25, concerning Moses. The Bible says in verse 24, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, most of you are acquainted with the story of Moses. How that Moses, as a child, because of decree that was made by Pharaoh, he was placed in a small basket or ark or little boat, pushed out into the Nile River, and his mother let him go, knowing that she was putting him in the hands of God because a decree had been made that not only this child but all the male children in the land of Goshen would be put to death. And then, of course, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the river, saw him, 
in the little ark or the little boat that was prepared, had someone to get him out of the water or out of the ark, and he was raised in Pharaoh's palace. And even though we might say that he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, he refused to be called her son. Verse 25, the Bible says, Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. There's no doubt about it. People who are not living for God enjoy their sinful life. Uh, there is an enticement that comes with sin. And there is a pleasure or a joy that comes with sin. But it only lasts just for a short period of time. And then it's gone. I mean, it's, it's gone. And you will find for every pleasure that you have that there is an equal amount of sorrow. See? An equal amount of sorrow. Paul addresses the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. He talks about godly sorrow, worketh death not to be repented of. Basically what he's saying is that there is a sorrow that comes when a person realizes that they are a sinner and that they go and seek God for forgiveness of their sins. So godly sorrow worketh death not to be repented of or never to be regretted. So a death takes place in the individual when he dies out to sin. But he says the sorrow of the world, it worketh death. And basically what he's saying is, that there is a sorrow that comes as a result of sin. And the more you sin, the more you slip into the hands or the jaws of eternal damnation. I don't know how many times that I've been called uh, late at night and people over the phone talking to me and expressing uh, sorrow over things that they have done. I remember one night a lady called me and she asked me this. She said, Pastor, do you believe that God can save a sinner like me? Yes, I really do believe that God can save a sinner like you. I talked to her about giving her heart to God. She was thinking about it. I do not know what she did prior to her death. That was on, I think, Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday night. We were having a meeting at church. Saturday, um, I had made an appointment to go see her, and before I got there on Saturday, I received a call. This lady had passed from this life. They found her dead in her apartment. Now, what I'd like to do, I'd like to just take you through a line of logic that's found in the Scripture. The Bible is indeed the manual of life. It's the set of instructions that comes with every human being. Uh, God has given us something that will ensure us or assure us that uh, we can live and have a very profitable and productive life. In Matthew, the 13th chapter, Jesus speaks concerning the sower, and he speaks of the different types of soil. Uh, what I'd like to do is just take you through some of this. Matthew 13, the Bible says, The same day went Jesus out 
of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on shore. In other words, he went into this little boat, pushed himself out into the lake, used the boat as a pulpit to separate himself from the people so that he could speak to this great multitude of people. And as he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. He sowed, and when he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell on upon stony places when they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprang up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell unto good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath the ears to hear? Let him hear. Now, Jesus explains this parable. In starting with verse 19, hear therefore the parable of the sower. He's explaining this parable to his disciples, the people that heard him seemingly did not understand what he was talking about. I do not believe that Jesus spoke in parables to intentionally hide the truth from people. But for people who were insincere, people who did not want to understand the things of God, uh, certainly, those people were uh, eliminated from explanations or understandings of the Scripture. I believe Jesus spoke in parables because he made things so simple in life that the, the, the person without much education at all could understand what he was speaking about if that person was sincere in their heart. Hear you therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which is sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. Do you know that the devil wants to take away everything that you hear in the house of God today? Every time you read your Bible, the devil wants to take that away. Every time you're in prayer and the word of the Lord is spoken to you inwardly, God wants to deal with you and talk to you about it, but there's an, there is a force that wants to take it away. He does not want you, the devil does not want you to receive uh, what God has for you. And he will do everything within his power. But oh, thank the Lord. If we want to hear, if we want to serve God, God's strength will prevail over the might and the power of the devil. Praise God. If you want to live right, there's nothing that can stop you from living right. But he he that received the seed in stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet he, uh, yet hath he not root in himself, but doeth for a while, for when tribulation and persecution ariseth, because of the word, by and by he is offended. Now, what the Scripture is saying, that just a little while 
after you hear the word of the Lord, the, if, if the stones are still in your heart, they, they're just there and they stay there. And you cannot uh, do anything about the word of the Lord if you are holding on to things that you ought not to be holding on to. Some people have stones in their heart and those stones need to be removed. If there's anything in your heart that would stop you from obeying God, listening to God, observing God, you need to root up those things, dig those things up, and, and cast those things out of your heart. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Bible says the Lord will not hear me. Now in verse 22, He also that receiveth seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches Choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. A lot of people, a lot of Christians suffer from what they call burnout. And really it's not burnout, it's choke out. They just literally choke themselves to death because their priorities are on other things. You understand what I'm saying? Their priorities are on other things. If you're trying to live for God and you spend most of your time thinking about your personal welfare while you are here on this earth, I will assure you that those things that dominate your mind will come in and choke you to death, spiritually speaking. They will choke you to death. Now, if you'll notice in verse 22, the Bible says the cares of this world. The cares of this world, I've often described those things as things that you should care for, but... Perhaps you care too much. In other words, there's not the right balance there. So I care for certain things, but I care too much. I think any good steward over the things that God has allowed him to, to uh, the things that are placed under his responsibility, God has allowed him to manage, he's going to take care of them. But there's... Such a thing is taking care of them to the degree that it is, it is hurtful, spiritually speaking. Uh, God has, let's say, given you a, a, a nice new automobile. And, and yet, uh, uh, while you are required by God to take care of the automobile and keep it in a good state of repair, that, that you take and, and spend all your time polishing it and waxing it and to the point that, you know, you begin to get lifted up in pride about what you have, and after a while, uh, you can't even sleep at night for thinking about your car. Teenagers do this, you know. They, they can acquire any kind of old wreck, and it just almost becomes a, a god to them. I know. <clears throat> I've been there. My first automobile was a, uh, a light blue 1953 Ford. And I tell you, I thought that was the prettiest automobile that had ever been made. I'm here to tell you, I spent time with that, time with that. I probably washed it enough. In fact, I, I washed and polished on it so much, my dad came out one day and he said, Son, you're polishing the paint off of this. <clears throat> I noticed a little bit of a, a redness underneath the, the light blue, and I, I asked my dad, I said, What's happening? He said, well, you're polishing it too much. And I said, well, what is this red? He said, that's primer underneath the paint. <laughs> I had some polishing, 
some sanding, uh, a polishing compound that I put on it. And, man, I rubbed it and rubbed it and rubbed it and rubbed it and rubbed it. And it just almost looked like a mirror, you know. And I didn't want to go through any mud ever. Uh, nothing. I mean, the tires were washed and clean and everything. And uh, what I wanted to do most of all was just take my car. You know, the thing would just run, you know, just top speed. I mean, it would really go. And I thought it was real cool, you know, to have a car that, you know, it was a stick shift and you could squeal the tires going 70 miles an hour. And I'm serious with you. <laughs> uh, you pull that thing down in high gear and just squeal the tires going 70 miles. That was cool. And you, and you get in this car, though, and you drive around town where all the girls are, you know. And you drive around town real slow so that, <clears throat> you know, and everybody's wanting you to just press her down and go. But you won't do that, see. Just, and we put those glass pack mufflers on them, fiberglass pack mufflers, and they just rumble, boy. It sounded so great, you know. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> so I know what I'm talking about when I talk about young people getting caught up with this. I spent so much time. I'm sure that if I, if I, if I had all the shines and polishes and I could accumulate those somehow and just apply them down the road, I had enough shines on that one car to last me all the days of my life in every car that I would drive. I'm I'm sure of that. So, God gave me an automobile. I should take care of it. But, I care too much. And when there's not a healthy balance, what happens then? I get choked out. Spiritually speaking. Now the next thing is the deceitfulness of riches. Uh, I'm pretty sure Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said the deceitfulness of riches. There is something about riches that is so deceitful. There's just something about it. Riches have a way of blinding you to your real need of God. Now, this is an age-old problem. If you turn with me to James, the second chapter. Just turn there, if you would. James, the second chapter. James goes through this test of brotherly love, and this is what he said, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. All right? For if there come unto you, into unto your assembly, pardon me, a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. I think you can and gather the line of logic that he's talking about. When we see people that are wealthy, we have a tendency to respect them more than someone who is poor. Isn't that true? Right now, my mind just goes to a particular situation. I remember talking to a preacher, and he told me about several millionaires that he had recently gotten into his church, and he was so, actually, he was so caught up in this. Uh, I made a promise to God many years ago that 
I would not look at a man's pocketbook before I looked at his soul. I think it's important that we understand that every person in this world deserves to hear the saving message of Jesus Christ. That's so important. It's so very, very important. And we have to understand that that sometimes we have motives in witnessing to certain people. I believe in order for a church to be financially strong, it must have financially strong individuals. And I believe that. But on the other hand, just to go out and talk to people and witness to people that have a lot of money solely because you want to make your church financially strong defies the reason for the existence of the church. So James says, Are you not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren. Have not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? So in walks two men into your assembly. One of them has a nice new suit on and a nice tie and he's very impressive and the ushers take him and lead him up to a real good place. In walks a man that doesn't have a suit on. Uh, he's tattered and torn. He's rugged. He doesn't look like he has any money. And you just say, why don't you just sit back here, sir? Now, what James is saying is that this, this is a tendency that, that we all have in the way we treat people because that we have this warped concept relative to riches. We think that if a man has a good education, if a man is, is rich, and, and certainly, please understand, there's nothing wrong with having money. And there's nothing wrong with having a good education. Now, the reason why I throw that in because there are are some scriptures that I'll be reading that deals with the wisdom of this world versus the wisdom of God. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just a, if God has blessed you with a lot of material goods, you've got to be careful because the temptation is always there to trust in those things more than you trust in God. So we, we just have to understand that some people are indeed rich, and yet they don't own much. See, James is talking about one man being rich in faith and one being rich in the things of this world. Now, if I ask you this question, what would you be better off involved in? Riches as far as spirituality is concerned, or riches as far as the world is concerned. Most of you would say, well, I'd rather be rich in faith. Most of you would say, well, I understand the value of being rich in faith. But on the other hand, when it comes to actual practicing or actual pursuit, maybe I should say, 
of one or the other, we spend more time pursuing the riches of this world. Now, America needs a revival. America needs a revival. America needs a revival. And there's so much apathy and so much complacency in our world today. But we will not have revival until such a time that there, there, there is a hunger created in our heart for spiritual things. We need spiritual things. We need spiritual faith in God. We need to become rich in God. So <clears throat> we show respect to persons. This alone, James is saying, is the test of priorities. If you show respect to a person that is wealthy and disrespect to a person that is not wealthy, then that is a true picture, a true photograph, a true projection of what you think about riches in this world. Now, should we respect the rich? I think so. But not above a person who is rich in faith. Should we respect? I think the Bible is saying we should respect every man. Jesus said con concerning <clears throat> calling our brother. Now, he was talking about our brother, but I think that the line of logic would uh, go even beyond the borders of the family of God. He talks about looking at a, at a brother and calling him a fool. He said, if you call him a fool, first he said, if, if you look at a brother and say, Raka, that is... Uh, a word that's used to describe a rascal, a scoundrel. If you look at a, an individual and say, oh, that rascal. Jesus said, you're in danger of the council. If you look at your brother and say, thy fool, you're in danger of hell, fire. Wow. That was not a message for the baby boomers. Why would Jesus say, if you look at your brother and say, thy fool, that you're in danger of hellfire? Jesus is saying, if the man is smart enough, if he's wise enough to have received Bible salvation, he's not a fool. In other words, if he's smart enough to be baptized in Jesus' name and be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, he's smarter than most people that walk on the planet earth. And we should respect that man for the decision that he's made for God. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 1. First Corinthians 1. <clears throat> and we'll look at verse... 26, for you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. 
Now, if you notice the word call is in italics, that simply means it did not appear in the original text. Now, I'm, I'm certainly not taking up issue that I think the Bible is wrong. I believe the Bible is correct. But when you read your Bible and you see something that's in italics, uh, some Bibles do not have this. In other words, it, it, this is a choice of the person who are the people who are responsible for printing the, the Scripture. See, the Bible in its original form is absolute uh, and it is correct. It's infallible. But they put this in there to let you know, and they put it in italics, that it did not appear in the original text. So, when we look at this, for ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Now, the reason why I say this is because the Scripture says many are called, but few are chosen. There are many people that are called to follow God. Many more are called than are chosen because the choosing has a lot to do with your own decision to follow. But God's going to call you regardless of whether you're willing to follow Him or not. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. So God's going to call you to serve Him. The Scripture says, not many. And when the Scripture says, not many, it simply is saying that in comparison to the number of people that God has visited and called, not many people take heed to that calling. That fit in this category, all right? The wise after the flesh. Now, you can be wise in this world and yet be wise in the things of God. But if you're only wise in this world and you're not wise in the things of God, you're not going to understand your need of the Lord. Not many mighty men. Not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. God just has a, a different way of working things out. And God has a way of totally confusing the system of the world. The base things of the world and things which are despised have God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Isn't that something? God has a way of taking and, and, and just totally disrupting the way of man. God's ways are so far above our ways. And the Bible says in verse 29 that no flesh should glory in His presence. None of us have any reason to boast. None of us have any reason to boast. Now, let's turn to 1 Timothy, the 6th chapter. And we want to start reading <clears throat> with verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is, is such a, a valuable, valuable thing. 
to just be totally content, to be happy. There are some people that are that are just never never happy. I personally believe that it takes too much to make Christians happy nowadays. Are you listening to me? It really does. It takes it takes too much to make Christians happy nowadays. A lot of the people that I know and rub shoulders with and some in this church, if, if you just can't keep up with everybody around you, you go into deep depression. If you can't have the, the most modern thing that hits the market, you're unhappy. Now you have to understand if that's the way you are, you have a problem. And you need to confront that problem. Now, this may not be Sunday morning type preaching. We're usually more evangelistic. But, but, but you need to hear this. It's taking too much to make some of you happy. And if there isn't some type of activity that will that, help you to burn your energy all the time, and I'm certainly not against our, our leaf uh, ball game. <laughs> I think I think for Brother Manley he needs to stay out of it, but <clears throat> let the younger guys play this. <clears throat> how many of you how many of you above thirty years of age played football last Saturday? Raise your hand. Only John Repka. John Silo? Roy Grant? See, I'm naming off a bunch of you. You won't raise your hand. Because you don't know what I'm going to say. Well, I'm not going to be rough on you. I quit playing that when I had to quit. But I'm I'm just telling you this, that see, your day is coming. And if you're going to go out there and work that hard, you're going to have to get in shape. You're going to have to work out two or three weeks before you do that. You can't just throw yourself out there on the field and just take out running and run with these young guys doesn't work that way anymore <laughs> it just does not work that way anymore I, I I played softball up until just a few years ago and finally uh, everybody was wanting me to play and I'd end up pitching so I'd pitch and then somebody I'd bat and pitch and that's all and after a while I got where I couldn't even pitch my ankle would swell up so so big and I'd miss the next Sunday morning so two, three years in a row after the after the church picnic, I missed on Sunday morning. And one Sunday morning, lying in bed with my ankle propped up and an ice pack on it, and I got to thinking about this. I said, hey, this isn't right for me to abuse my body to the point I can't even go to the church and preach. Well, it'd be different now if I was... If it was an accident, but it wasn't an accident at all, see? <clears throat> now, where was I when the lights went out? <clears throat> I wonder if we took away all the pig roasts, church picnics, harvest parties, leaf games, Youth activities and everything. I, I'm just, listen to me now. 
And 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 if we concentrated on prayer and worship and seeking God, how content you would be. Now I do believe, please understand. I do believe that there's more to church or the more to our church life than just worship of God. I think fellowship is an important function. But what can happen is you can get caught up in that and leave the other undone. And when you get caught up in that to the point that you just live for some party or you live for some activity to go to, you're going to find out that you will be very discontent. Extremely discontent. That all of a sudden you start losing out with God. And you wonder why the church just cannot satisfy you or make you happy. Now, let me tell you something. I wish I could go back 20 years, and I wish, looking back now, I wish I would have taken care of myself a little bit better. I'd probably still be playing softball at least, not as hard on you, with some of you guys. But I didn't. I just went all out. Kind of ruined myself, so... You know you're getting old when your greatest fun in life is watching somebody else have fun. <clears throat> Godliness with contentment is great gain. Could you be content in serving God? What if you were thrown in prison like some of the first Christians were? What if you were thrown in jail like some of the first Christians were? Could you serve God? Could you worship God? Could you keep your mind on God? For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. The Indian burial grounds, they used to take everything that an Indian had, especially their chiefs, and they packed those earthly belongings in the graves with them because somehow they thought that some great day, judgment day or whatever, that all of those things could be taken with the spirit that left the body. This was also true of the Egyptians that placed great wealth and riches in the tombs, the pyramids and places of their leaders. But the Bible says, you brought nothing into this world, you can take nothing out. Having food and raiment, let us... Therewith, let us be there with content. You'll have to forgive me. I can't even see today to read. I don't know what's wrong with me. But they, I'm kind of that way all the time though. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition or sin. For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some covet after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's like someone shooting arrows at the heart. You, know, you go out in some of these 
shooting ranges where they have these the profile of the deer and such and compound bows. They have marked off various places for the targets to strike. And this is what's happening to people who just go after things of this world. They pierce themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. You think of Sister Luke. I, I really don't know all the conditions of the world. I'm not abreast on history that much, but I know Lois's grandmother passed away, what, two years ago, Lois? She was 103. And they stated that her passing away, that she was alive when Sitting Bull was ranging, roaming the range in the prairies and such. You think about it, that's a long time ago. You think of Sister Luke, you know, 1893. That's a, for any cars. The world has changed, hasn't it? You think, man, that's a long time. But when you compare 100 years to eternity, that's not, that's not very long. And most people just live for the here and the now. Just let me have what I can right now. Let me get what I can right now. I don't know. Just recently, it seems to me that the things of the world just I don't know. God has just given me a revelation, I think, recently concerning the things of this world. We don't need nearly as much as we think we need to be happy. Rich in faith. Have contentment in the heart. I see too many unhappy people. I visit with too many unhappy people. America, we have a problematic society. Everybody coming to God seems to have monumental problems. They're hooked on this. They're hooked on that. They have mindsets here, mindsets there. Too many things clouds the issue. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Rich in faith. 1 Timothy 4, verse 8. For bodily exercise profiteth little. Now, I think if you look at this, it means it profits for a little while. I think if you look at some of the aches and bruises and such that you get by trying to compete with the younger generation... If you wish, you know, you wish you'd have gone out and worked out a little bit and stretched those muscles. You, you think, well, it does profit uh, more than just a little. <laughs> but the Bible is saying it profits for a little while. But godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to, to come. If you seek after godly things, 
You can be happy now. And you will also be happy tomorrow. A heavenly reward. Now some of you may be confused about the clock in the back right now. And I don't know what's wrong with the clock. But it says 17, 18 minutes after 5. <clears throat> I was following that clock. I was thinking it was 11 o'clock. And I got to looking. But uh, for some reason, <clears throat> I, I, I guess I was pretty much on target. Because I also, I have 18 minutes after 11. You have 20 minutes after. Well, we're close enough. <clears throat> I want to give you a chance to give your heart to God. Listen to me. I'm very, very, very sincere about serving God. I want you to be happy. I want you to lay hold on eternal life. I'd like for you just to bow your heads for the dish. We'll put a tape in.